0: Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Patrick K. O'Donnell. He is a combat historian, author, and public speaker who has written 10 books recounting America's wars. He is an expert on elite and special operations units and irregular warfare, and an expert on the Office of Strategic Services, America's special operations during World War II. Today, he discusses his latest book, Washington's Immortals, the untold story of an elite regiment who changed the course of the Revolution. And now, Mr. O'Donnell and Dr. Bradburn.
1: Well, welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon. And I'm delighted to have with me today Patrick O'Donnell. Welcome, Patrick.
2: It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, Doug.
1: So Patrick is a well-known historian, author, journalist, uh, written over 10 books of uh, American military history. And uh, he's here going to be speaking to a a sold-out crowd about his brand-new book, Washington's Immortals. The untold story of an elite regiment who changed the course of the revolution. Congratulations, Patrick. Thank you, Doug. I say congratulations because the book is a tremendous success. It's getting a lot of uh, publicity and interest. Uh, I think you've got some of the best blurbs I've seen in a long time. I particularly like like the one by Ed Lengel, who's a friend of uh, Mount Vernon's, of course. Patrick O'Donnell, this is Ed quote, Patrick O'Donnell accomplishes for the Revolutionary War, what Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers did for World War II, what do you think of that?
2: It pretty much captures the essence of the book, and I'm very grateful for that quote.
1: How much did you pay Ed to get that quote? <laughs> Zero. Okay, I don't know about that. I know Ed a little. All right, so uh, I, I've uh, never met Ed. <laughs> yeah, actually, well, that's right. uh, well, military historian like I've yourself,
2: spoken with him and and emailed him, but I've never met him, so I felt that that was a very I, I yeah. appreciate that unbiased quote.
1: Well, it's an interesting one because it, it captures, I think, uh, the Band of Brothers' way of, of doing a history in that sense that you, you actually are looking at one unit or one company, one regiment in this case, and following their, uh, I guess it's not a regiment, what is the order of unit here?
2: Well, I mean, if you really want to get technical, brigade, you could have an org chart
1: yeah,
2: yeah. that, uh, in a, a, a diagram of the various regiments that were spawned yeah. from the original Baltimore Independent Cadets. Yeah. And that is a mind boggling uh, yeah. area of, of discussion yeah. because it spawned, you know, several uh, regiments from the original regiment and subgroups and in light infantry. And it goes on and on and on but I wanted to focus in on the individuals mm-hmm. because it was the only way to really coherently tell the story. Yeah, And, and it, you know, I could have told a regimental history, but it probably would have been 3,000 pages long.
1: Right. Yeah, and we have those. And we've it would seen, have been
2: multiple seen. regiments within the Maryland line.
1: I think that's one of the things that you've got your finger on that has stymied some uh, military histories of the Revolution is the lack of continuity. Across time,
2: the continuity is through the individuals. It's the officers and enlisted men, the key officers and enlisted men, and that is the story that I wanted to tell. And they're all amazing and interesting. And it's also a combat history of the Revolution through the through the eyes of one of Washington's most elite units, the the Marylanders, and as well as the Delaware Blues.
1: All right. Well, okay. So let's take a step back there, and and so the book's entitled. Washington's Immortals, who, who are Washington's Immortals?
2: The Immortals, they, they, they get their name from uh, the Immortal 400 or the Immortals from their epic stand at Brooklyn where mm-hmm. several companies of Marylanders under Mordecai Gist um, launched a series of bayonet charges, desperate bayonet charges, against Cornwallis in a stone house that allowed a portion of the American army to escape that day.
1: And that's the story that first drew you into trying to write this book.
2: It was the story that first... Uh, all of the stories that I've ever written have found me in one way or another. Yeah. And it's it's serendipity. It's kind of... Well, let me give you an example. When I came back from Fallujah, I was with the 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines in Fallujah as a combat historian, and I went house to house with these men. And I came back with the unit, and I asked my parents not to come to Camp Pendleton because Fallujah was a, a memory seared in my mind. I mean, it never will. For I'll never leave. It'll never leave me. But I needed some time to sort of think things through. And I came back, and everybody had their families there except mm-hmm. for me, and I was alone. And these old Marines that were in their kind of windbreakers, and they had gold letters and stuff on their on their their shirts, and they said, "Who are you?" And I said, "I'm a combat historian. I was a three one." He's like, "They were wow. We were." You carried our battle gun we were in the Korean War and we held a key hill a regiment against a Chinese or a, a company against a Chinese regiment that helped in the Chosen Reservoir yeah. and the next thing I know they're like well why don't we take you to lunch and I, I got a ride to the train station and they took me to lunch and then the next thing I know they were like why don't you come to our reunion yeah. <laughs> and that spawned
1: yeah.
2: a book called uh, Give Me Tomorrow, which is one of the best-selling books on the Korean War, and it's on that company, George Company. Mm-hmm. But it just fell into my... Yeah. That story just found me. Yeah. And the same is true with Washington's Immortals. Six years ago, I was in New York City, and the commanding officer of 3-1, who I was in with Fallujah with, mm-hmm. said to me, Pat, do you want to go to the Met? I said, no, how about we do a battlefield tour of Brooklyn? Because my mm-hmm. my favorite hobby is to sort of tour battlefields. I like to kind of walk around, etc. And I did some research on Brooklyn and we met at the gates of Greenwood Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, wasn't there obviously at the time, but it was the start of the largest battle of the American Revolution, the Battle of Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn, and we walked up and down Battle Hill. We walked to the stone house and saw I mean, this is arguably one of the greatest small unit engagements in American history that nobody knows anything about.
1: Yeah.
2: And we found the, the old sign that's about two, block, two or three blocks away uh, hanging at the Michael Raleigh American Legion post. And at the time, that sign was rusted and scarred. And I said to myself, how is it possible that people that saved the United States are buried in an empty lot or under a street corner? And all there is is a sign to mark a mystery. And it's uh, for me, it's all about about curiosity. I wanted to know who these men were, why they did it. And I started to pull on this small thread, and it, it unraveled an entire story.
1: Yeah, the, it's really fascinating the way you lay it out, because it, you start with that, that anecdote of you're discovering the story, and then you really pull back the veil. And, and I think even for those of us who are historians of the Revolution, this book is... Uh, is really a marvel of uh, of um, uh, investigation, uh, you know, trying to find the people and connect those lives together. Uh, so, talk. Well, let's talk uh, first then about that stand itself. I mean, uh, who, at that moment, why did it matter so much that these men assaulted this stone house, as you say, with Corcoran Wallace uh, inside? What What goes on is a what was happening. Set the stage.
2: The, the stage is the, the, one of the largest battles of the American Revolution is unraveling. Mm-hmm. And the Marylanders are kind of out on this rocky outcropping known as the Heights of Iguanas, along with a portion of the American Army. And the plan is that this is supposed to be sort of a collapsible defense, that they will slow down the British Army... Inflict maximum casualties, and then make their way back to you know, Brooklyn Heights.
1: So this is July of 1776. August is uh, it's August. August 10th.
2: It, 11th, it is August twenty. It is the 20. night of August twenty-seven. I get it right if I seventeen seventy-six. And the Marylanders are 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 an elite unit in the sense that they have training, and then they have bayonets. Most of the most of <laughs> the Continental, most units in Washington's army at this time don't even have bayonets. <laughs> These guys actually had a semblance of training, also, and they're put out by Washington on this sort of rocky outcropping known as the Heights of Guanus, and they're supposed to absorb the bulk of the British army. And there's over 20,000 British and Hessian soldiers that have landed at Gravesend Bay, and what happens is it's a it's it's sort of a hammer and anvil type mm-hmm. strategy. The the Marylanders and the bulk of Sullivan's troops were out on the heights of Guanis. Mm-hmm. Get the anvil, and that that is the mm-hmm. uh, distraction force under Grant, which about ten thousand troops or so, and swinging around the flank through an unguarded pass. The
1: unguarded pass,
2: uh, which happens multiple times in the American Revolution, because we have poor intelligence, etc. Uh, there's Cornwallis, Clinton, and Howe, and and they are. They're leading this, this flanking maneuver, and they basically surround the Heights iguanas or come in from behind, I should say. And there's a series of fortifications, uh, Brooklyn Heights, which faces all this stuff. And um, what happens is the Marylanders are out-positioned near Greenwood Cemetery. They withstand Grant's uh, assault. They do well. They, they, they hold the line. Um, many of the other American units hold the line. Um, in and around places like Battle Hill, which is on, um, on top of uh, Greenwood Cemetery now. And then they come to the sudden realization that they are being flanked, and they have to fight back to where their headquarters was at, which is this old stone house. And as they fight through um, this, basically, which is, which is now enemy territory, they come in through a series of scenes which are really interesting. The British actually try to surrender in one situation, but it's a ruse. And they, they fight through that, and then they make their way back to the Stone House. And meanwhile, Lord, um, Lord Sterling um, assembles a unit that he has with him, and that's men, which is about five companies of Marylanders. We don't know the exact number, but that's, the number, that's uh, the number of companies that's pushed around. And they are charging into the Stone House to create a gap in the British lines that allows... These, the other Americans that are on the Heights of Guanas to escape through a mill pond into fortifications at Brooklyn Heights. Mm-hmm.
1: So they save the day. They, they save they the day. Yeah. But what happens to them?
2: And what happens to them is that there are, the exact number is not known, but uh, the, the reports that are out there during the American Revolution indicate there are about 250 or more Americans that are missing or killed that day that are Marylanders. In, the, in this uh, series of charges against yes. Yeah. And we don't know if they were captured or killed and we, we know that there were, many were killed and captured. I mean we don't know the exact proportion of, of which and they're buried somewhere in Brooklyn. Mm.
1: Yeah So that was the story you wanted to recapture and
2: I wanted to know that and it's like and then you start to unravel this yeah. thread and you find out that the Marylanders are involved in every practically every major battle or action, and, and then they're in, in the inflection points okay, of many good. of these point battles.
1: All right, so let's get into that. So why why were the Marylanders uh, so crucial in that way? Talk a little bit about how they became, you call them an elite unit. Uh, why were they elite? They, what was elite about that? They became
2: an elite unit because of the leadership within the unit, the training, which they had at the beginning to some degree, and then the, it extends. But it's this core leadership of enlisted men and officers that keep the Army together through its darkest days. It's resilience. It's this leadership that once the Army, the, the army, um, the Marylanders and parts of the Army are destroyed at places like Camden, for instance, but it's the Marylanders and this leadership that sort of brings it all together, and they build a new Army over it, and this happens multiple times. It's their resilience. It's a story about resilience and leadership.
1: So one of the things that struck me is the... This group initially comes out of one of these volunteer companies or, I guess, battalion that's originally formed uh, with uh, a very high standard for accoutrement, for training, um, for people with position in society to join this group. Talk a little bit about the origins of the Maryland uh, companies uh, that that form. The
2: the initial company, the first independent company, is a a man of... um, Honor, family, and fortune—that's their motto. They're formed in Baltimore City on a wintry day in 1774, and Mordecai Gist is 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 a very wealthy uh, merchant, and an extremely successful businessman that puts together this small company of men, and they sign a compact. They sign their names, and they sign what they are, what their um, what their sort of mission statement is. They're they're willing to protect the other colonies within 48 hours notice and then they're willing to uh, spend their own money to arm and equip themselves with the best money uh, best uh, weapons in accoutrements that money can buy and then they begin to train and they have a a trained drill master that had been with a Massachusetts unit and he sort of begins to train these guys and they you know learn basic uh, formation drills probably some uh, shooting And they form, you know, sort of a tight bond. And and within this group are some extraordinary men, like Samuel Smith, for instance, Mm -hmm. who's the savior of uh, Baltimore City and the War of 1812. Um, But it's this kind of core group that expands. And these men are in key leadership positions in what's known as, first, Smallwood's Battalion, which is a collection of companies some of them are, later are independent companies like the cadets, and they're welded, they're, they're brought together into a battalion. And then that morphs into the 1st Maryland, and then it, it morphs into several other regiments throughout the war.
1: All right, so let's talk about some of those men then that uh, were And they And those guys, are fundamental. those fundamental,
2: those key men are, they follow these other, they spawn. Uh, the other regiments and they're the the leadership that are it's that sort of underlie or un, that 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 gird the the other regiments and and they hold things together.
1: Uh, Mordecai Gist uh, is he's a cousin of Christopher Gist, a nephew. There's uh, a yes a relationship
2: there, and he's um I mean this he's a so for
1: those of you listening out there in the ether world, uh, uh, Christopher Gist of course is the. Is the uh, the guide that helped George Washington twice, uh, multiple times? Worked for the Ohio Company, went with him when he went out to Fort LaBeouf, uh Was a friend of Washington's, uh, and so Mordecai's a relative, a relative. And they, um, he, he um,
2: they have he has to- close ties with Washington throughout the war, and it's Gist uh, is the, in sort of in many ways the heart and soul of the Marylanders. Um, not only is he, he a early agitator of the revolution, he you know he participates in something called the burning of the Peggy Stewart, yeah. which is kind of Maryland's Boston Tea Party in a way, but he also just is a very uh, he just he's willing to put his entire fortune on the line for the burning
1: his, of the Peggy Stewart. The Peggy Stewart is a merchant vessel that's forced that, I guess the master of the vessel is forced to burn his ship, right? What's the story there?
2: Basically, is he's either forced to to turn over the ship or burn the ship and he, he burns the ship and yeah. the cargo on board and you know gist is a very uh he just really believes in the independence i mean uh so much so i mean he later names his his children uh states rights and independence i mean this guy's he he's an ardent ardent believer in, uh, in 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 you know he's he is he's, he's definitely a he is fighting yeah. against tyranny. Yeah. He believes in his cause. He's willing to put his whole fortune on the line in his life. And um,
1: hey, you get these Many these, times man.
2: Yeah, I mean in, in today's but what we see I think in in the all the books that I've written is it's people like that that are able to change or bend history mm. because they believe unlike everybody else.
1: Mm. Yeah, that be- that ability to believe in spite of the fact that, it, to, against to, all odds. Against
2: all odds, and just sort of, uh, I mean, just rise above what's what's occurring around you that it just almost seems supernatural.
1: Gist's papers are at the New York Historical Society, the Maryland Historical They're American in multiple American places, yeah, that, but the
2: bulk is. of them are at the Maryland Historical Society. Yeah. And they're on, I mean, some of it's on, it's all on microfilm, and... Mm-hmm. and um, and there's some at the New York Public Library. He's not a
1: character I'm really familiar with. Who else has done a lot? Nobody with? has done anything on yeah. guest. So that's, he's not like a go-to quote source in some of these military. No, history. and I think oh. that's what
2: makes Washington's Immortals pretty unique. Yeah, because we really yeah. focus I've really focused on people that that deserve to get the spotlight. Yeah. And,
1: well, we were mentioned one of the great things about the book is the recovery of a lot of these men that um, nobody heard of. I think is, but in context. But you're also, you're not only using papers that exist, but you're also using the pension records. Talk yes. a little bit about those for people who don't know about them. Um,
2: if you were lucky enough to survive the American Revolution. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and live to the period with a pension.
2: Yes, you were, this is in, you know, the 1820s and and, and so on. Mm-hmm. You could go down to the local courthouse and swear under oath, what you did and saw and then have to somehow convince a bureaucrat that you were really there and there were a lot of people that faked it too and um so what they did is typically spewed out the officers that they were they served with sometimes the the battles that they participated in and then if you're lucky the their detailed accounts it's what like what
1: did as particular yes style,
2: and know. this is kind of like history trapped in amber mm-hmm. this is the untold story of the American Revolution in my view because it's the common man it's the privates and the mm-hmm. sergeants that did they were in the sharp end of the fighting mm-hmm. that you capture their story and that's what I I was I was trying to to achieve like one yeah, of my favorite think, accounts, uh, yeah.
1: Tell us when, some of those recoveries. is
2: Lawrence Everhart, who's yeah. a Marylander. That's maybe the luckiest man of the Revolution because he's in Fort Washington, and you know, oh, wow. listeners here, this is sort of the the Manhattan side of the George Washington Bridge now, but it was a massive fortification that in November the British had surrounded, and you know, a week before the adjutant leaves the fortification and delivers to the British the complete plans, order of battle, and everything else. And how masses his troops around the fort, and it's a crushing defeat. But Lawrence Everhart's probably the luckiest man of the Revolution since he found a rowboat. It was able to row across the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. And he's at Fort Lee, and he sees Washington looking through his spyglass at Fort Washington and the carnage that takes place inside and I mean the Hessians and are ruthless. Yeah. They're bayoneting many of our men. They run these prisoners of over 2,900 through a gauntlet, a literally a gauntlet where on either side yeah, the are machine. yeah, they're yeah. the Hessians and British soldiers are basically beating and kicking yeah. the prisoners as they're going through this gauntlet. And and he sees Washington and he sees tears in Washington's eyes. And I thought that that was a great. Scene, you know, we think of Washington as this stoic character, the stoic man, and there's the emotion of of Washington as as, you know. This is this is a very dark time for Washington. The series of (laughs) defeats. Yes, I mean exactly. It, yeah. But it's the humanity that we see yeah. in in Washington through these pension files, and that's many of the things that I you know was trying to capture with
1: the book. Are the pension files organized by state? Is that what made you able to get at them? I think they are.
2: Well, they're they're uh, they're on a thing called Full Three. Right. It's it, you can if you got a subscription, you can access it. But what you got is you got people that are, you know, they they move west, so you don't know they they're you know they're in Kentucky or Ohio, and it's a it's a real. It's a challenge trying to, you're searching, yeah. trying to find just, you know, little fragments. And that's what this book was kind of like. It was like an archaeological dig, just yeah. trying to take this Roman mosaic that had been shattered into a thousand pieces and, and piece a thing together. Yeah. And a lot of them are the pension files that are used to sort of give people a, a flavor and understanding what was what, what it was like.
1: Yeah, I think that you've used them in a tremendous way in that regard. I mean, there's some historians who've used them for memory, they've used them for issues of social history, you know, kind of what was what was the common soldier like, what made him tick, that sort of thing. But I think you're the, probably one of the first that I've seen extensively use them to recreate sort of like after, you know, the, the, the oral histories of particular actions in this way. And I think it's Absolutely. really well done.
2: Thank you very much. Would,
1: give me another, give us, for the audience, another tidbit drawn from the pension uh, records that strikes you as you... As another...
2: You Another great story is Thomas Carney, who's mm. this African American that's a Marylander, and we can we gather some of his story through newspaper accounts and then also the pension files, and this is a man that um, you know at Guilford Courthouse reportedly bayoneted five British soldiers, mm. but I think the thing that I thought was really interesting and. I, I kind of use the term band of brothers because I wanted to give people sort of an under, a, 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 a means of connecting in, in the, to give this sort of modern energy to this, this period. And, and Kearney is a real example of the brotherhood that was forged in battle because at a place called 96, which is on the Georgia-South Carolina border, this is where Thomas Kearney has one of his finest hours. Many of the Marylanders are part of the Forlorn Hopes of, of the of the Revolution. And Kearney was part of the Forlorn Hope at 96. And the Forlorn Hope, for those that don't know, is effectively a suicide mission because they, it was called a Forlorn Hope because it, there wasn't
1: yeah, – the no chance of survival
2: wasn't, was very limited. And Kearney was given uh, – many of the men of the Forlorn Hope were, were just armed with axes to cut across an at that that was around the fort – and um, cut through that as a means of breaching the defenses, mm-hmm. and it was there that he uh, he saves his officer Perry Benson,
1: mm-hmm.
2: who's later decorated in the well, not decorated, but he's involved in the second battle, St. Michael's, in the War of eighteen twelve as a as a general. But Pence Benson and and um, and Carney remain lifelong friends mm-hmm. because of that incident. And I found that to be kind of the heart of what this book's about.
1: That's extraordinary. Yeah, those those human connections, right, uh, across uh, lines. Okay, so uh, so we talked about a, a little bit of the sources here and the source material that you you dug into. Uh, let's get a little more of the story of uh, the immortals and how they behaved, different actions. Uh, what is the, their kind of most famous behavior outside of the one? You feel like, well, God, nobody knows about what they did at Long Island, but what about this? Where would you point? I,
2: I actually, I wrote the book in the middle. I started the book in the middle, yeah. and, and actually in some ways backwards. I really, I became obsessed with the Battle of Stony Point. Mm. And, and that is, you know, we're, we're on the eve of that. It's, uh, Ju- it's July 15, 1779, and this is a time when, you know the the war was sort of stalemated, and the British attack this the small outpost at Stony Stony Point in May, uh, 1779, and they are hoping that that Washington sends his whole army in there. Instead, they send the light corps, and and the Marylanders are the heart of the light infantry, and this is a very unique organization in the sense that it was they pluck out volunteers within the regiments in the Continental Army. That are some of the best soldiers and they put them into the light corps light infantry and the light infantry under matt anthony wayne on on july 15 1779 are ordered to attack stony point Point. and it's an epic story you know they they gather intelligence they find out the weak points they find out that there's the, the low tide that the, the atabay doesn't extend out they can work around that but jack stewart who's a main character of in my book is ordered to lead the the left flank of the forlorn hope, yeah. and this is about a hundred and I don't know forty men, one hundred twenty men, and the forlorn hope of uh, the men are armed with the axes at the front. They're they're ordered to not have, uh, their 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 muskets loaded they, because if they discharge accidentally, they'll the yeah. surprise is destroyed.
1: Yeah, this is the surprise attack.
2: And and Stewart leads this attack, and um, they break through. And they capture Stony Point in there. I used extensive amounts of uh, of pension files here, and it was just incredible stuff. I mean, just how Stewart is this uh, Annapolis native that's in his twenties, and his his motto in life is "You only live once," and this guy is completely yeah. reckless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he asks one of the pension applications recalls the day that that Stewart lines everybody up and ha- asks for volunteers. To to go into the forlorn help. and it's you know it's amazing. It's it, they are also they're ordered to, to go in with the axes and the bayonet. Uh, nothing loaded. Their muskets not loaded, and the officers are are armed with spears or poltroons, and and they're ordered to basically run through any man that that, that mm-hmm. decides to to leave early or or talk, and that actually happens and and mm-hmm. find in one of the accounts.
1: Yeah, the, the stunning point is a, is a remarkable success, <laughs> um, and it, and the, way the Americans behaved much better than the British had behaved when they had massacred all the people at uh, what was outside of Germantown, like after Germantown or before Germantown, in, in Pennsylvania. You know what I'm talking about.
2: I, I love the story of what happens, and I found this in the pension files too of the deserters. Yeah, they 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 actually take. And they build a gallows after they captured recaptured Stony Point. And this is, they're only going to stay for a couple days because they know the British are going to come back. And they erect a gallows and they they execute many of the deserters. Mm. But one of the men in the book, who I follow through the entire story, is a deserter but talks his way out of it. Mm. And he fights again with his brothers in the Delaware Blues. Mm. But once again at Camden, he leaves the Blues and, and fights with the British Army. Wow. And he gets captured again in cowpens, and then talks his way out of that. So, <laughs> I really made—I really kind of made the. Um, I looked at that as sort of another untold aspect of the American Revolution, because nothing was the lines of allegiance weren't solid. Yeah,
1: and I, well, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, it's becoming more and more commonplace to emphasize the civil warness of it. Yes. Of the revolution, but yeah, these men who switch sides and fight on both sides and. Uh, yeah, it, you you definitely reveal the uh, the mercenary and, and bizarre aspects of the conflict as it changes over time. Absolutely. I mean, Benedict Arnold's whole story is uh, is one that uh, evolves because the French come in, you know, and exactly. because of what happens to him. So everybody has their own tale to tell. Uh, let me ask you this: as uh, somebody who, who's not formally trained in in eighteenth century history and has written on all different types of eras. Uh, was it? A ch- what, what were the challenges that you faced, kind of moving into an 18th century uh, war story?
2: Well, for me, I, I've um, written seven books on World War II, yeah. and I've conducted over 4,000 interviews with World War II veterans. So the veterans <laughs> of the American Revolution couldn't talk to me, but it was through their through their letters and diaries and these pension files that I felt that they were there i was able to, to to sort of get it in their own words if you will no, so that was sure. a real challenge but it that's was a, a
1: great i would think that's a great experience though it sort of you, you it you've was seen combat veterans of all different stripes from all you know reflecting on their experience and you're reading these these you know documents that were created by combat veterans to reflect on their their time it must have been you know in that sense you can sort of identify, sort of, I, I see where this person's heading. You
2: see the sameness, and you see yeah. sometimes in the the hints of what we now know as PTSD, which wasn't categorized as such, but you see, you know, these manifested in what they know, we the night terrors that these men talked about or how they were quarrelsome after the war. There's that element of mm-hmm. of, of the war that's sort of the hidden war of the American Revolution that I really got into, mm-hmm. and I, I really enjoyed... Um, going to pretty much all the places that they yeah. had fought and yeah. walking the ground and, and going to their houses and you know just all the different places
1: yeah so okay, so, that, so the, what were the other challenges then? So you're, first you're used to having you know alive people to talk to about what they've done.
2: The challenge was and then
1: you got to get your sources mustered.
2: And it was the story yeah. because there were a lot of people that said it couldn't be done yeah. because of the continuity. And we we were, I was concerned about, and that one of the reasons why I started with Stony Point is I wanted to get, to find the core characters, because, and then work backwards and forwards from there, because I wanted to know who the Jack Stewart's were.
1: Well, you needed people that survived long enough. I didn't want to start
2: with one of the guy that was unfortunately taken out on the first day of of battle or in August. Even though we do have some of those individuals but i I wanted to have sort of the continuity and I picked individuals that I could follow
1: yeah.
2: in one way or another and then and then trying to find their sources and then trying to find the source and backing into it like with the pension files and stuff like that,
1: yeah. Uh, was that uh, did, were the pension files new to you? Uh, as that was a new, as you're in the middle of the project and you're like, "Oh my, look at this! There's pension files." I guess Fold Three is there, so you're
2: no. It was a it was a a new source to me. Yeah. Um, I uh, interestingly enough, I I met um, Richard Brookheiser, and yeah. um, he had screened Hamilton, and uh, and I asked him. Uh, I said to him, "I want to do this book. Do you think it can even be done?" And he said to me, well, the pension files, Pat. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. So then I'm uh, I'm looking at this from multiple directions, and that was one of the ways that it, to sort That's of crack the code. I
1: didn't know that Brookhiser ever used the pension files. That's I like, don't think he did. Yeah, he just knew about them. Yeah. yeah oh, they're a very underutilized source. I knew a professor actually who used them in the classroom, uh, in which basically students were you know they would go in and they'd find a character in there and then they'd be asked to sort of research their life and it's a great exercise of, of trying to recover you know the common people the regular folks right. of the revolution because they're so hard to get at you know it's not even exactly. like the Civil War there's a lot more letters you know from Civil War soldiers and it, than there are from Revolution War soldiers and,
2: and it's it's fragmentary it's like yeah. some of them are robust yeah. Yeah. and then it's like you're, you're and then you're like excited and then you're like oh come on tell me more and
1: yeah. And they dis- people disappear. And, and then you and find, they I mean, the same the, name, and you're like, oh, I thought this the was, other this thing was bad. the
2: other thing, the sameness, obviously, is yeah. that they had to be destitute. So you're reading what happens to these men after the war, and how, you know, for instance, like one of the guys is a Jewish immigrant from Baltimore, and he ha- has hardly anything other than um, some, um, he's able to make these red, uh, these. Uh, uh, these black balls that they use for uh, shoemaking and stuff like that. And it's like he hardly has any worldly possessions. And you see that that run the thread that runs across many of these men. Well, they need that to if, make that case to get their pensions too, right? True. Just
1: for poor veterans, not for any veteran.
2: It, you have to make the case. So, yeah, whether yes. or not some of it was conflated, we don't know. But it's you still sort of get a sense of, you know, this, this is a time when people were really, you know, they fought for their country, but there was no safety net whatsoever.
1: Yeah, there's no safety net, and they're old by this time. I mean, they're beyond they are. the age of like productive work in the you know in the in the early American sense. So, so there's a you know there is a, the ones who survive that long aren't aren't going to have a lot.
2: And you think about the men that actually were wounded or, or lost right. an arm or leg. It's like yeah. how do they how do they even yeah. earn an income? You know, it's.
1: I mean, I don't know if you've spent much time probably at, you know in the papers of George Washington, but you know he's getting people writing to him directly all the time sort of asking for writing about their service trying to you know get him to help when he's president before he's president right and they're just showing
2: up here at the gates of Mount Vernon just unexpectedly yeah many times the commander-in-chief would feed them
1: (laughs) well I I mean I think that that sense of um, the continuity of the experience of war kind of comes through here I mean I think you do I mean you 18th century has, has different technologies has different, um, you know, different kind of tactics that are considered to be the right. norm. Uh, and you're really good at bringing the reader through. How, how, how comfortable were you, you know, finally figuring that out?
2: I think a lot of that stems from my own personal experience hmm. with war,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which was a, uh, I, I survived the Battle of Fallujah not as a uh, reporter. I, I actually was a, unexpectedly a participant in a rifle platoon
1: yeah.
2: going house to house. And it was a situation where I mean I barely survived, and I mean I I, for instance, pulled out a marine that had half his face put, blown off by mm-hmm. an RPK machine gun, mm-hmm. and then it's, so it's that that experience combined with the after effects of war, and being you know staying um, in touch with all these marine veterans that I had been with
1: the relationships that you and, and you
2: see uh, families broken apart by the war or suicides etc. So it's I felt like I was able to uh, write about war because I'd been there.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about that, um, if you don't mind. Not so much about the personal experience, and I don't want to uh, get into anything you don't want to talk about. But uh, just more in terms of the context of how you're understanding the American Revolution. Uh, I think that when John Shy did a lot of his work on, you know, the kind of the the social history of war. In the in the early '70s, great essays, you know, you know uh, that he wrote about the, the war, you know, he he, he published a, a later version of this, and he, he consciously said, you know, clearly these essays were heavily influenced by Vietnam and the experience of Vietnam, and, and his notion of you know, uh, the American, uh, you know, the Americans are you know were like the Vietnamese in the sense, in the face of an occupying army that was, you know, holding down their their nationalism. How does the, you know, how does the last 15 odd years of Iraq and Afghanistan you know influence your thinking about what the what the stories in the American Revolution might be
2: My um my sort of ex, one of my expertise is well it's elite units but also yeah. counterinsurgency hmm. So in a very subtle way I looked at the the war through the lens of of counterinsurgency and, and wanted to and, and try to be as objective as possible with both the British and their allies yeah. as well as the Americans, and I just wanted to sort of tell that story yeah. and the the challenges that they had as an occupying force to defeat not only um, the American army but also the idea, mm, yeah, which is critical. Yeah,
1: we'll and talk it, a little bit. And I mean, so and what it, does a counterinsurgency have to achieve?
2: Well a number of things sense. that you uh, counter a lot of this strategy that was so vogue like say six years ago has been much of it has been debunked or dismissed mm-hmm. because it's so expensive and time consuming it, it takes years and of of of, uh, of an investment on a, on a country's part uh, but it's good at identifying problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And in this sense, it's like you've got one of the main issues is population protection. Yeah. If you're trying to implement um, something, you have to protect the loyal population of, that you're trying to, you know, you're basically to... to, to, to it, and then there's also the the issue of the idea... It's sort
1: of the civilian population there. They need to be protected. In many
2: ways, it's the center of gravity. Yeah. And in this, in this case, the British... Um, what we see over and over is that they're a professional army. In many cases, they try to do the right thing, but they just don't have enough troops mm. to garrison what they hold. Right. Yeah. So when and they're this gone, they're calling the, you know, the it, it yeah. also, Much of this is because of the, the global aspects of the American Revolution after the French enter mm-hmm. that we see, um, as well as the, the fact that they'd failed to raise early enough in the war loyal American Battalions to to once they cleared an area to hold it down,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it, you know what's old is new. We see so much of this occurring today.
1: Yeah. It's easier to take a place than to hold it against yes. people that don't want to be held down. And
2: then there's the issue so about of the idea. Yeah. Oh, I'm oh, well, sorry. You well, know, the issue of like irregular forces, which are able to swim through population centers much easier than a conventional force, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. And you see the experimentation. Well, they can right? they can yeah. Disappear. And you see the British army adapting. I mean, the, the, this is not a monolithic kind of thing. It's it's a very adaptable force. It's very flexible, and they try to do different things as the war goes on. And both sides are adapting quickly, but I think that the American obviously uh, adapted faster in this mm-hmm. sort of learning organization kind of thing yeah. on, on how to fight the war.
1: Well, and, the, and then the question of this idea, you know,
2: the, the idea. The idea is one of the greatest ideas. I mean, uh, the United States, the ideas of, of the United States is one of the greatest ideas in, in mankind's history that, just impacts so many other revolutions spawning from yeah. 1776.
1: Yeah, so how do you kill an idea? How do you occupy an idea that this is a people that should be governing themselves? You know, it's very hard to do with with a musket.
2: It's it's very hard to do with a musket, but what we do see is that the battles do count. Mm, mm. Because the population swings mm. based on what happens on the battlefield.
1: Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, military historians often do this, you know, notion of the contingencies of history and war, and you know, if if for the the flutter of a butterfly wing, then Napoleon would have been lost, or something. You know, the what is it? The, the carriage is late, and the, the the ammunition doesn't show up in time, and the battle swings, and world history changes. Um, but in a long war like this, where Washington and the Marylanders can lose a lot of battles, I mean. How do we I mean how do we know what the the turning point in those contingencies is?
2: I think there were so many turning points on yeah. so many different in so many different areas. But what we see and this is something we see in modern war as well, the population does swing in, in some cases based on battle in finance. Hmm. The the war is almost snuffed out in seventy eight and seventy-nine because of money and hyperinflation. Hmm. In the in microcosm is in Washington's worlds where an entire company actually uh, mutinies in yeah. in New Jersey because they're forced to pay for their own food and clothing and supplies and etc. So it's like the the war could could have easily turned. And you know we also have to think of it in, in the sense that it's possible that multiple states might have gone the side of the British. It may not have been. Yeah. All of the colonies, yeah. especially if they had they pursued.
1: Florida. They Florida.
2: If they had <laughs> pursued a better, you know, yeah. if they had in concentrated in the South. Yeah. And we may not have had such a favorable set of uh, conditions. I mean, there's so many factors. Yeah. The global aspect of the war, too.
1: Yeah, how did you. Uh, what, so, what surprised you, I guess, about the American Revolution? That you didn't know going into, you're like, oh my goodness, the, I'm missing the fundamental thing here, or maybe there wasn't one. Well, I
2: think, I think a lot of it was the, uh, I think the thing that surprised me, perhaps, was just the, the number of people that changed sides multiple times. Uh, and I, I really kind of wanted to make that a, you know, a, a, a focus in, in its own subtle way. I I love the the quote that Green has that, you know, right before or after Utah Springs, where he says, you know, an an interesting phenomenon occurs Mm -hmm. where most half of my army is fighting for the British and the British soldiers are now fighting in my army. And it's Mm -hmm. like and then the the thing that I thought was so astounding was many of the men in this book marched in a two and a half year period at 4,600 miles Mm
1: -hmm.
2: in the south. I mean, it's just staggering.
1: That is amazing. And we
2: know that through Robert Kirkwood's meticulous diary, where every day he would re- re- record the number of miles that they marched.
1: Mm, a lot of running, chasing around. Yeah, all, I mean, all, it's all us and friends.
2: Yeah, I mean, the race to the Dan is one of my other favorite eras of the uh, of the book. I just I thought that that's underreported. Well,
1: let's finish with that. Let's finish with that story. Then, so what is the race to the Dan? The, the
2: race place? to the Dan is um, it it occurs. After, the Dan uh, is a river, by the way. The Dan is it. a river, and <laughs> the, the race to the Dan is is basically General Green's army
1: yeah.
2: trying to avoid uh, Cornwallis at all costs. And, and and Green also builds in, I think, very brilliantly, that he wants to wear down Cornwallis, yeah,
1: yeah. and he, he uses fundamentally that Cornwallis can't replace. Yeah, men. but
2: what we see is Cornwallis, and this is the adaptability, I think, of the the British army as well as its leadership which I thought was... Uh, Cornwallis, you know, most Americans have this view of him as a static leader that, you know, gives up Yorktown. and yeah. But he was a great leader of battle. Mm-hmm. He really... Mm-hmm. His men loved him. He was up front yeah, in most cases. Like soldier, soldier, he was a soldier-soldier. I mean, he was a soldier-soldier. After he takes India, for instance, he's awarded a massive war chest, gives it all to his men. Mm-hmm. And this is in, during the Revolution. He's there with his men. And after the Battle of Cowpens... In um, the winter of 1781, where Daniel Morgan basically slices off part of Bannister Carleton's, Tarleton's yeah. corps, Cornwallis is obsessed with getting his men back, and he needs to pursue Green. Right. But he realizes that he his army is a heavy army in the sense that they have a lot of baggage, they have cannon, etc., but he turns it into a light corps. And he takes his tents and everything else, puts them in a bonfire along with the rum, you know, which is a, sh- a shock for yeah. most of his men. So and he like says that. he's going to pursue Green to the ends of the earth. And they go through. At this point, they basically go through North Carolina, and it's crossing rivers and, and streams mm-hmm. in, in, in incredibly horrendous weather. And the Green's aren't the American army, is you know, barefoot in many cases. They're fighting small actions to cross a river. Green has to have boats ready yeah, at the right it's time and run right, race after another, run We're race after, after another through, through a series yeah. of over series of small rivers or large rivers, like the Yadkin, Catawba, to to get to the Dan River and to the hopefully the safety of Virginia. And that's the plan. <laughs> yeah,
1: the safety of Virginia. Yeah. Yeah,
2: and they they make it, and and uh, then they they basically spend several weeks rebuilding the army, getting reinforcements, mm-hmm. and then they they go back across the Dan. And they fight the epic battle at uh, Guilford Courthouse.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's a great book, and there's a lot of mysteries to be uh, discovered in it, I think. And I encourage everybody who's interested in not only the year of the founding, uh, um, the American Revolution and and the history of war, to take a look at it. Patrick, you really did something great here. It's It's an insurgency, it's a civil war, it's a traditional war, and it all comes to life because you've discovered these people here. Thank you.
2: The story is the story. It's all about the people. Yeah,
1: it's great. Great work. All right. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.